and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are moving right along in our study of the book of Daniel, and class teacher Doug Brady is very excited about teaching this lesson. So exciting, though, that it will take him two weeks to get through the fifth chapter of Daniel, a chapter that highlights the writing on the wall. You will want to have your Bible open for this as Doug teaches, and you will quickly hear his excitement in covering this chapter as it is one of his favorites. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church, located in downtown Dallas, Texas. The class meets every Sunday morning in LaVorne Hall on the lower level of the new worship center every Sunday morning at 9.15. We all gather together at 9 o'clock for coffee and donuts and a short time to visit with fellow class members. The class has over 100 people each Sunday and we are continually growing. We want to invite you to visit us if you are in the Dallas area. Well, Doug has gone to the podium, has given a few announcements, and is now ready to begin this lesson taken from the fifth chapter of Daniel. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. I want you to know that as we're going through here in this book, we have looked at a number of different things. But I want you to think about for just effect. Uh, for just a moment, the effect that the book of Daniel has had on so many cultures. How many cultures do you think have a saying that's, have you seen, he can't read the writing on the wall? Or have you seen the writing on the wall? It's as clear as the writing on the wall. They all talk about that. Where does that come from? It comes from Daniel chapter 5. Also, I want you to see, we looked in Daniel chapter 4. And I'm going to say this, that uh, what I'm fixing to say may rub some people the wrong way, but I don't care because I believe it's what the Scripture teaches. And it's this. We saw an extremely proud man in Daniel chapter 4, and God went after him, and God got him. In chapter 5, we're going to see an equally proud man, and God didn't go after him, and he's spending eternity in hell. Now, why would God go after the one and not the other? Ah, because God foreknew the choice Nebuchadnezzar would make, and he also foreknew the choice that Belshazzar will make in rejecting God when he has a clear opportunity. And so, we're going to go into this passage looking at that And the other thing we need to remember from living the lives of both these men, that no matter what is going on in the world, God is in control. Nothing surprises him. Nothing takes him uh, off guard. He has a plan. You know, when you can foresee something, you also pre-plan for it. The idea of provision in that Latin word, if you look the... uh, 
we get our English word from the Latin word providio, and what it means is to see beforehand and therefore plan for it. That's what God does in his provision for us. Before we open the book, let's pray. Father, as we gather together today on this very special day in our country's history, I want to take time first to pray for this nation, the nation that has sent out so many missionaries all over the rest of the world, a nation that has lifted you up, who's even formed a government based on your principles. We also know, Father, that Satan hates us, and he wants to destroy us, and he's elected not to do it from bringing in outside armies, but instead to have us rot like overripe fruit from what's going on on the inside. Now, Father, I know that in the past you brought a great awakening to our nation, and then you brought a second one. Now, this morning, Father, I'm praying for a third, that you reach down, turn our faces up towards you, that you rekindle the warmth of evangelism in our hearts and the desire to be moral and pure. Father, there is so much corruption and greed and sin in our country. No, disreg- no regard for human life and human suffering. I pray, Father, that you will change that. And I don't know what it will take, but you can do it. And so I pray that first for our country. Then, Father, I know that you have spent a great deal of time cultivating each of us and providing for each of us. Help us not to produce sour grapes for you, but good fruit. Guide us in that direction, Father. And then finally, Father, I pray that you'll open up this fifth chapter to us of the book of Daniel, and we will come to understand the principles that are going on here and the important lessons that we can learn for our life and how to live in a pagan world. Pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, when we get to chapter 5, can anybody tell me, before we've even read anything, who's the king in chapter 5 of Babylon? Belshazzar. Now, chapter 4, it was Nebuchadnezzar. We're, we're shifting over maybe a decade. Why doesn't Daniel tell us about anything that happened between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar? Well, because... God didn't think we had a need to know. There was nothing there that he wanted to tell us. But let's look a little bit at the history because you're going to see an attack here, an attack on our Bible, an attack on our faith, and we need to be prepared and understand it. In Babylonian history, the first king was a guy by the name of Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar. He was Nebuchadnezzar's father. He was the king at the time that Nebuchadnezzar first invaded Judah. He was the one who brought the various clans, or bits as they were known, of the Chaldeans together to form the Babylonian nation. He partnered with a guy named Cyaxerxes of Mede to rebel against Assyria, who was the main power at the time, and he founded the Babylonian Empire. Then he turned it over to the second king, which was Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years. He was arguably the greatest king of ancient times, even greater than Hammurabi. He built the magnificent city of Babylon and many extremely innovative additions and attractions uh, found in that city, such as the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. After he passed away, a guy by the name of Amel Marduk ascended to the throne, and he was Nebuchadnezzar's son. 
One of the interesting things that Mel Marduk did was he liberated Jehoiachin, who was the last of the Judas, uh, Judean kings and whom Nebuchadnezzar had imprisoned in Babylon. And, but about two years into his reign, he was assassinated. And a guy by the name of Nigrigleser took over the throne. Now, he was Amel Marduk's brother-in-law. In other words, he married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And he was also one of Amel Marduk's assassins. He remained king for four years. Then a guy by the name of Lavashi Marduk took over. He was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was only king for nine months because he was assassinated. And a fellow named Nabonidus took over, who was also the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was a co-conspirator in Labish Marduk's assassinations. And historians will tell you, even to this day, that he was the last king and the last ruler of Babylon. Now, we need to come to understand that chapter 5 is what higher biblical critics will say is the weak point of this book and the place where they always attack and attack the strongest and attack first. And once they eliminate or show the, all these errors in chapter 5, then they can say this book was not written in the 6th century it, uh, B.C. It was written in the 2nd century B.C., not by the actual Daniel, if there ever was a guy named Daniel living in the uh, 6th century B.C., but by someone who just used a pseudonym of Daniel to try and use this book for political purposes. You had a comment, Gary? No, no, he came back. No one is, was sitting, sitting on the throne during that seven years while he was animalized. And I don't know if it was in the wilderness. I think it was in the gardens uh, where some of the other cattle were grazing. You know, there was a great deal of tillable land inside the walls of Babylon. Uh, they did that intentionally. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, what is the attack that these critics bring? The first attack is that, you know, it talks, you're going to see that it talks about a banquet that Belshazzar sets out for his thousands of his nobles in this, in this fifth chapter. They say, there is no way that there could be a banquet room that size to house all of the thousand noblemen all of his wives and concubines and all of the servants needed to, to handle that feast. That just couldn't happen. They didn't have the ability to make a room that big. There's no evidence of any rooms that big. And so this is just bogus. And they, they maybe the guy in the second century didn't realize that because they had rooms. They didn't have the ability to have a room like that to be able to light it sufficiently, to be able to have it the right temperature for this kind of a banquet, they just didn't have the capabilities for that. So it shows that someone who's writing this doesn't know the 6th century. So it had to be written in the 2nd century. Number two, they say that there never was a king named Belshazzar who ruled in Babylon. We all know the last king was Nabonidus. Show me, they say, one non-biblical reference to Belshazzar ever found anywhere. And for the longest time, we say, well, there's not any. 
It says that Nabonidus in several places was the last king. How could you have another king if these, if these things say it's the last king? And finally, you will see in there it says that Belshazzar, his father, is Nebuchadnezzar. That's impossible. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a son. We've listed, we have documents that show all the sons of Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar was not one. This book is bogus. What do biblicists say in response to that? Is there any arguments that can counter? Well, if we were talking 100 years ago, we'd have difficulty. But thank God we're not. If you look at the Bible Knowledge Commentary on the book of Daniel, 5th chapter, you'll find that there's a report of a number of archaeologists who were digging in the capital city of the empire, that is Babylon. And you know what they found? They found a banquet hall that was 55 feet wide, 165 feet long, well able to seat a thousand noblemen, have all of Belshazzar's wives and concubines there, and the servants necessary. Now, one thing I left out, one of the things they said, if they ever did have a, a hall that large, they would have never plastered the walls. You don't put plaster on walls of a banquet hall like that. But when they found this room... Guess what there were indications of on the stones of the walls? Plaster. Why does there need to be plaster? Because somebody's going to write in that plaster. Oh, there goes argument number one. So when it comes to these arguments, it's zero to one on the side of the biblicists. Now, number two, there were no known non-biblical records of Belshazzar's existence or reign in Babylon. And there are multiple sources that indicate that Nabonidus was the last king. But then there was a British archaeologist by the name of Sir H.C. Rawlinson. And he found something that was a scroll. He, this is the archaeologist, British guy, who found a scroll, I mean a cylinder. He found this cuneiform scroll called the Cylinder of Nabonidus. And you see it cracked and they put it back together. That's cuneiform writing on it. And let me tell you some of the things it says. It says, and it was, it was discovered in the temple of Shamish, located in Sippur in Iraq, and it confirms the existence of Belshazzar, that he was the oldest son of Nebuchadnezzar, and that he was appointed co-regent with his father. Now, why would a king appoint his oldest son as co-regent? What, what use is there in that? You don't need two kings. Oh, unless you tend to want to be involved in archaeology. And we have found clay tablets now that show that Nabonidus absented himself from the capital, spent a great amount of time in a place called Timnah. It's over in Arabia, you see, right here in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, way away from over here in Babylon. And it's there in Timnah that he was doing these digs. He wasn't there. So who, in effect, was the king? Belshazzar. Oh, you poor, higher biblical critics. You have lost number two. Number three. Was he his son? Well, I would concede he's not his biological son of Nebuchadnezzar, but I won't concede at all that he's not rightly referred to as the son of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, those higher biblical critics, most of who started in Germany, they're thinking with Occidental minds. 
not oriental minds. This was written by someone with an oriental mind. And that's the way they think. They think descendants means the son of a father, even though, well, look, an example in Matthew 9.27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, was Jesus a son of David? Not a biological son, but he was a descendant, and they referred to him that way. Now, a higher biblical critic who would be arguing with me right now might say, yes, but that's a biblical source, and you're trying to prove this with a biblical source. Show me a non-biblical source. And I will say, okay, let's look at the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. Shalmaneser III was king of Assyria uh, from 859 B.C. to 524. He was the son of the previous ruler, who was Asher Bonapal II. I had a beautiful black lab named Asher Bonapal one time. And, but anyway, this black obelisk, that's, a, that's Shalmaneser. And, and you see all that cuneiform writing, and it's really in two parts. And on one side of this uh, black limestone bas-relief, uh, it speaks about Jehu, king of Israel, and how Jehu severed Israel's alliances with Phoenicia and Judah and became the subject of Assyria, who Shalmaneser was the king. It describes how Jehu brought and sent tribute to them. And then the caption under the scene, written in Assyrian cuneiform and translated this, the tribute of Jehu, son of Omri, I received from him. And then he says what he received. Was he the son of Omri? No, not the biological son. Was he a follower? In fact, Jehu was responsible, Omri was a prior king of Israel, of killing off all of Omri's offspring so that no longer could anyone from Omri sit on the throne. And yet he's referred to as the son. That's the way they looked at it. So to say that, that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, there's no problem with that in the oriental mind. And, and the higher biblical critics lose three to nothing because Daniel is the word of God and God wrote it and we know what's going on there. So Daniel's history of the empire has now taken a four decade leap from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. And we have two reasons. Those intervening years and events were filled with nothing that had to do with the Jews because this was a book written about the time of the Gentiles, which was how they dealt with the Jews. Now, let's look at a quick outline here I want you to see of the chapter. You're going to see the state of the empire. You're going to see Belshazzar decides to throw a party. We're going to look at Belshazzar, the man. We'll see his assault on the Most High. And then we're going to see God's response and Belshazzar's reaction. And maybe we'll get a little farther than that. We'll just have to see. We'll see what his wise men can do. Then we're going to see the queen. And we're going to have to find, figure out who this queen is based on what she knows. Well, let's look first at the state of the empire. And I want you to see this. Most of this empire, most of the kingdom of Babylon at the time of Belshazzar had been overrun by the Medo-Persians. If we have a map next, do we? Uh, after... If you look here, by the way, here's Sapor where they found that uh, 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 obelisk, or and the or I mean the cylinder. You look, they come in this way and attack, and they're covering all of Babylon, and except the capital city. Now they're having a hard time with the capital city. 
Do you remember? You had walls that were 350 feet high, 87 feet thick. That's quite, and it was surrounded by a moat, which was fed by the Euphrates River. Are these guys ever going to run out of water? No, because the river flows right under them. They have a constant source of water. They're going to run out of food. Well, they had supplies, historians say, for 20 years. Nobody's ever had a siege for 20 years that they've been able to successfully. In addition to that, there's tillable land inside those walls. Now, can you bring one of those siege engines where you come up and you, and you go right next to the wall and then you lay down the door and everybody charges over? Not when there's this moat in between and not 350 feet high. If it was 350 feet high, imagine the size of the base. It just couldn't work. You imagine trying to bring a ladder that would have to be like 400 feet high that, because you have to put it outside the moat to get up to the wall. That's just a, a dead man's trap trying to come up a ladder like that. So, no, they laid the siege, but they weren't able to get in. And Belshazzar took the position, you're never going to get me. You guys are wasting your time. So, capital city was under his control, and he believed Babylon would never fall. That brings us to what he did in chapter 5, verse 1. He decides to throw a party. Let's have fun. Verse 1 says, And Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, who were there at the party? Well, you had a thousand of his noblemen. It says, if you look a little farther in verse 2, that it says, And when he had tasted the wine, he, he brought out for the king and his nobles, and they were all drinking in the presence of his wives and his concubines, and they all drank this wine. So now, think about this a second. Here you are in the evening. In fact, it happens to be October 12th. I can't remember the year right now. We'll get to that next time. But Harold Honer at Dallas Theological, he has charted not only the year, not only the month, not only the day, but even the hour in which this event occurred. It's amazing what that guy could do. But anyway, so they're sitting there having this party. It's in the evening. You've got a thousand noblemen, and they're all drinking wine, and all getting a little inebriated, and you got all these wives and concubines running around. What do you think is going on? You think maybe orgy would be a better description? Well, that was my impression, and that's what I thought was going on until I started reading a little more about this guy, Belshazzar. And maybe it wasn't quite an orgy, except maybe or a one-man orgy. But when you look at his life and what was going on, you find that he was extremely proud, egotistical, and cruel. It appeared to me as I read more that he'd be unlikely to share his wives and concubines. Let me give you an example of this guy. He was on a hunting trip with a couple of his nobles. And one of his noblemen killed his limit first. Belshazzar says, well, that's high treason. Drew his sword and killed him. Gary? Where, where do these stories come from? <laughs> where does what? Where the stories, stories come, come from? Do they come from that kid won't tell No, I'm looking. I listen to Herodotus. And I'm following uh, uh, Josephus has some of these things in there. Cambridge, uh, 
history, that five-volume set, Cambridge Natural History. Right, so, so did they mention the dog show there? They have since, and you will see... They, now, there's not a mention uh, in Herodotus of Belshazzar, but Josephus speaks of him some, but he doesn't, he speaks of him as the last king of Babylon. But in Cambridge Natural History, it does speak of him. A total of like 80 years between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar? Not 80 years. I wouldn't the four decades. You said that. That's 40 years. Four decades. You said Daniel makes a leap. About four decades, that's 40 years. Yeah, number three, Daniel's history of the empire now takes a four-decade leap. Yeah, I think it's about four decades. To, between the time of this event and, and chapter four. Right, but the event in chapter four were before his last year. So that's how Harold got there. So not only did he do that, then he was at a party one time. And there was a courtier there named Gadtis. And he, not he... But he was being admired by one of Belshazzar's concubines. Now, not Gadis admiring her. The concubine was admiring him. And decree went out immediately, and Gadis was castrated. Yeah, I would think it might. And uh, that's this guy, Belshazzar. So is he going to have a party where he shares all his wife and concubines? I don't know. Maybe it's everybody gets to watch him. I, I, I don't know. But whatever's going on, that's this man. And he gets high on himself, and now he makes the fatal mistake. The fatal mistake. Look in chat. Yes. Question. On the first one, you have the thousand nobles, yet you've got Persia coming in as a siege. Was there access for those nobles? Well, they were all living in Babylon, okay. in the city. You know, they had to, you're not, you were not safe, you were subject to capture if you weren't in Babylon protected or, or maybe over in Timnah where nobody thought the king of Babylon would be. Okay. Yes. So he's throwing a feast for all, you know, and the army's all there. Everybody is there in the capital city. Okay. And so we see this now in chapter two, this attack. When Belshazzar, Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple which was in Jerusalem. Now, why would he do that? What would be the purpose of doing that? Now, wait a second. Does he know who those vessels belong to? Does he know about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, and who's coming next? I think he does. Daniel's going to remind him later in this chapter that he knew that. And he's saying, not going to happen. You can't do that to me. There is no way. Taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, so the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought the gold vessels that were taken out of the temple. And the house of God that was in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, the wives and concubines drank from them and they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. When he called for the vessels from Yahweh's temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem as spoils, it was exactly opposite Nebuchadnezzar's edict that we're not going to take any bad actions against Yahweh. Yahweh's a great God. He's the most high. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said. 
And the use of these temple goblets showed contempt for him and, in effect, a direct challenge to God. Do you ever want to directly challenge God? Well, look at all the people in our nation who've done that. Yes, they will. But you remember the prophecy that he gave, predicted that the Medo-Persian Empire would replace the Babylonians. So what was God's response? Now, I'm going to tell you, I am very thankful for this response. Because sometimes to me, let me repeat that, sometimes to me, it seems that God's response is a little tardy. He doesn't do things as soon as he should. Think of what would have happened in 1973 when they first read the opinion that prayer and Bible would not be allowed in our schools any longer if a bolt of lightning came down and destroyed the Supreme Court building, killing all nine justices. And the pastors could have set up, do you see what happens when you challenge God like that? If you don't put the Bible back in the schools and prayer back in the schools, no telling what he's going to do next. Our nation would have woken up. But that's not the way God wanted to do it then. But it serves the way he wants to do it in chapter 5. Verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand. Now, if you read this carefully in the Aramaic, it can be translated a man's hand or what appeared to be a man's hand. The fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. And then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. Now, actually, hip joints went slack is a idiom. Do you have any idea what that idiom really means? There was a puddle in his chair. That's what that means. God's response was quick. Belshazzar's iniquity had become full. I want you to see something, an important concept here. Sin is never static. It always leads downward. It's never static. It always leads. You look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, you see, it just keeps going down and down and down. Sin also makes us impervious to the danger we're facing. It's like an inebriate. You know, you see somebody get drunk, they don't have the good sense anymore to protect themselves many times. And they do stupid things. Sin does that to us. And also, God is not static he will deal with sin, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so what happened here? Out of the sleeve of night, a hand of God appeared, and with his finger he silently wrote in majestic characters on the plaster of the wall illuminated by the great lampstand where it could be easily seen by all, four words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsim. Those were the words he wrote. When he saw, Nebuchadnezzar just didn't see, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar did not just see the words appear there. He saw them being written. He saw the hand. He didn't realize it at first, but there'd been a great change. You see, when everything in the party started, that was a great banquet hall. No longer. It's now a courtroom, and somebody's going to be judged. And the evidence is going to be presented, and there's going to be no question of guilt. Let's look at continued his reaction. In verse 6, then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack. I'm reading that again so you can 
catch it in context. Knocking together, the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners. And the king spoke and he said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who could read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple. Why purple? That's the royal color. And have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Why third ruler? Because he was second. Yeah, you begin to see. Bible is accurate. He'd be the third ruler of the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. And then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Now, I want us to try and get to the bottom of these words so we really understand what's going on here with Belshazzar, because what he's, the state that he's in is absolute terror. If you look, it says his face grew pale and his countenance changed. In the Aramaic language here, like in the Hebrew language, verbs are put into stems, and the stem here is a PL type stem. What in the world does that mean? My Hebrew professor, a guy named Roy Blizzard, used to explain it to me like this. He would say, you put it in this one verb in the call stem, the standard stem, and it means he dropped the glass and it broke. You take that same verb, you put it in the PL stem, means he smashed the glass. That is, he intended to do it, or it was intensive action. Here, what is going on, it is intensive reaction. So when his face grew pale, it was an intensive situation. When his countenance changed, it was an intention. When he, in verse 7 where he says he called aloud, it should be, he shrieked because of what's going on, how he's in a panic. Not only is something that no one's ever seen happen before, with this hand writing on the wall, the guys who are supposed to be able to tell him the answer have no answers for him. And he knows something serious is about to happen. The fact that everybody's seeing it is, of course, important. That way, they can't, higher biblical critics can't say, well, this is just a hallucination. No, it wasn't. Everybody saw it. You don't have mass hallucinations like this, even though they were all drinking. And in fact, even though he'd been drinking, the events here had a very sobering effect on Belshazzar. Gary? The, uh, how much of Daniel was written in Aramaic? Aramaic was a common language, right? Yes. And why can't these guys read it and understand it? Well, we'll talk about that if we can get to the words today. But from chapter 2, I think verse 4 or 3, all the way through the end of chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. So this is all written in Aramaic. Yes, and David Tullis would send me a text message while I'm up here teaching. I don't, but the fact is, just a comment. I'm, I'm trying to kind of visualize what that event must have been like. All these people in this massive room that are feasting and everybody's talking and doing what they would normally do and all of a sudden in a room that size you could hear a pin drop. That is true. And if we get to the words, I'll tell you the reason why maybe it's surprising when you first said they couldn't read it. I think it's written as an acrostic. But you're right. Everybody 
But there's also, I think, an undercurrent, not just, you maybe couldn't hear a pin drop because everybody's whispering and word is spreading and people are running out and talking and, and spreading the word. You're not going to believe what's going on in there is what, what the message is going to come out. And you're going to see why in just a second. But these wise men, with their inability to interpret, it, interpret these words, they left Belshazzar in even greater turmoil than he'd been in before. It's best described as panic to me. But it teaches us an important lesson. And I want you to see this lesson. Mark, hit us with this lesson. Human wisdom is helpless in the face of God's activity. Human wisdom is helpless in the face of God's activity. Only God knows what's going on. And only God can explain the effects of what he is doing and what is going to happen. And men who don't know him will not be able to understand what his plan is, what his purpose is, and what even he's doing. And somehow, the queen hears about this. Look in chapter 5, verse 10. And the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. I think it should be translated the spirit of the holy God. They don't speak of their gods as holy. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of the difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. In other words, a name similar to his. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now, did you notice this queen? She seemed to know about Daniel pretty well. She was able to recite what he could or couldn't do. You know, it may have been that some of the noblemen who were present at this party at first thought this writing was part of the program or something. And, but after seeing the king's reaction, you think they were anyway thinking this wasn't something that he had planned? The consternation that arose in the banquet hall, I think, spread quickly throughout the palace. And such that the queen was summoned by the king's servant, and she decided on her own accord to make an appearance. Now... Who is this woman? I do not believe this queen is the wife of Belshazzar. I think his wives were there. At the, I think this is an older, wiser woman. I think she's one of two people. She's either the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, who Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, married, meaning his mother, or else the queen, the, the last queen of Nebuchadnezzar himself. One of those two, both of whom would have had access to what Daniel did with Nebuchadnezzar. And so that's who this person is. And Belshazzar would know her. Yes. Question. I can't help but ask or wonder, you know, if Daniel was obviously 
very well known and uh, spoke about all the accolades of Daniel. Of the older generation. How, where was the disconnect between Nebuchadnezzar knowing that? They didn't, Belshazzar didn't need this person. And he was no longer the head of all the magicians and conjurers. And, you know, a lot of times men who are in, and it's a very good point that you're making here, Ward. I mean, this, when you have a man who's extremely proud, what kind of men does he want to surround himself with? Yes, man, exactly right. And was Daniel a yes man? No, clearly not. We're going to see that here in, if we get there just a second. So you notice her description of, of Daniel. She obviously had acquired an extensive knowledge of Daniel. And moreover, she should not have told the king in his obviously crazed state what she did not, what she did, unless she had absolute certainty that, that, that you know, Daniel comes in. He says, well, I don't know what that means. What's her position now? Yes. But she had absolute. I think that's why I think this woman more than likely was the wife of Nebuchadnezzar and she was a believer. That's what I think. Now, do I have anything to prove it other than just how certain she was? You get Daniel in here, you'll know the answer because that's God doing that. We know whose vessels you're drinking out of. Yes. That's probably why Daniel was not around during those times because he would have killed me. And God probably held him until he needed him. Until the time that he was ready to use him. And I think it's important. Now, so Daniel enters the courtroom. He's probably in his 80s. He was considered unneeded for a period of time. Here's the question. Will Daniel now try to ingratiate himself with the king? Or will he proclaim with unashamed boldness the message that God has delivered, hand-delivered to Nebuchadnezzar? He didn't compromise in the first part of his life. He didn't compromise in the middle part of his life. And he's not going to about to compromise now. And that's something we really need to learn from Daniel. But let's look on now, starting in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you the Daniel who is the one of the exiles from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you. Notice he doesn't say a spirit of the holy God. He doesn't know the same God that the queen does. A spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination inside and extraordinary wisdom been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought before me that they might read this inscription and make the inscription known to me. But they could not declare the inscription or the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. How is Daniel going to answer him? Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make known the interpretation known to, or make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. 
because of the grandeur that he bestowed upon him, all, peop all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whoever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whoever he wished, he elevated. And whoever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of a beast and his dwelling places was with the wild donkeys and he was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew from heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sits over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, now to me those would be chilling words coming from this man, yet you his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Now, to me, at this point, there's no question that he knew about all that happened in chapter 4. He knew what happened in chapter 2. He was making a direct attack on the power of Yahweh, and now he's going to regret it for eternity. Yet you, his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And you have brought the vessels of his house out before you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Which do not see, which do not hear, which do not understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your waves, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and the inscription was written out. I want you to see something here. Is this a new situation to Daniel? No. Look at the situation. A revelation from God, a fearful and a frustrated ruler, incompetent counselors, and he's the only one who can supply the answer. Daniel has been there before. Gary? Quick question. How much of this do you think is related to the Mosaic Covenant? I don't think a great deal of it is for this reason. The Mosaic Covenant was with Moses and Israel and God. Foreign leaders like Belshazzar was not held to that covenant. I think if there's a covenant that it's related to, it's more related to the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to bless those that bless you, and I'm going to curse those that curse you. And Mark, you had a comment. I've, um, I've read Daniel 5, and I've read it enough times that it, it always slipped over me. Barrett and I were talking about this morning. Um, I always thought that when Nebuchadnezzar lost it, he was just he just left and he was out grazing with cows. But it says here they tended to him or they gave him. So even when he was in his mental state, they still attended to him. They just didn't throw it. Who do you think was in charge of doing that? Probably Daniel. But if you look at it here... This guy has been here before. He knows what is going on. Now, he also knows that the gifts are no better than the giver. And therefore, he rejects unequivocally and unashamedly. Does Daniel want to become third ruler of the kingdom? No. Why? Because the rulers of the kingdom are going to die that night. Well, I'm sorry, not Nabonidus. He's over in Timnah. But Belshazzar will die that night. And on October 
12th or 17th, whichever date it was. You look at when he says this. Now, this pronouncement of Daniel's is not a statement of ingratitude or disrespect, but instead it's an indication that he had read the words and they interpreted their meaning regardless of reward. I'm going to read these words to you because that's what God wants me to do. It's a message from God, and I'm going to interpret it. I don't need your reward to do that. I don't need to be paid to do that. Was Daniel given the promised rewards in spite of them? Some of them. Uh, I think he rejected them, though, as, uh, as he left the, the hall. But Daniel, confident in who he was and who was with him, did not mince words with Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, with Belshazzar at all. Does he in any way try to ingratiate himself with the king? No. But he forcefully informs Belshazzar of his errors. Even at an old age, Daniel's probably in his 80s right now. Daniel still acts and speaks with unashamed boldness. You know, many times ancient monarchs killed or punished the bearer of bad news. That happened certainly to Jeremiah. But that didn't alter Daniel's approach at all. Who put Belshazzar in the position of co-regent with his father? God did. Who puts people in positions of authority today? Who does that? God does. Now, I want you to see something. This is where we're going to finish today. That means we don't get into the words. I would love to talk about Mene Mene Tekel Ufarsin today, but I want you to see something because I want you to see something. This is a very famous painting. It's by Rembrandt. I don't know if you can notice the darkness that he has. This is King Belshazzar. You see the sleeve of darkness and the hand coming out and writing, writing those four words. Now, I think that to help answer your question, you know, I've seen some people try to draw a picture of this and they'll, they'll have a hand that comes from this direction and you'll see M-E-N-E uh, and then in English, writing from left to right. Those people didn't write from left to right. They wrote it from right to left. Now, you would think, though, if you were a wise man coming in, you'd read this word, then this word, then this word. But I don't believe it was written that way. I believe it was written this way, this way, this way, and this way. There were four words. It was in an acrostic. They're looking at that, and they can't understand it. Daniel does. But now, what has this guy done that's put him in this position? He's challenged the Most High God. And he has said to him, I don't believe in you. And you may have told my father that the Medes and the Persians were going to be the next boss of Babylon. Not true. That's not the only guys who've done some stuff like that. And I want us to finish tonight thinking about what God thinks. Let's look at somebody else. This is a guy named Frederick Nietzsche. He was the first one to say, I think God's dead. Now, of course, I've seen subsequent signs that says, Nietzsche says God is dead. God now says Nietzsche's dead. <laughs> And that's probably more accurate. Maybe even more recently, someone uh, who's do that. You may notice this guy, Ozzy, and God is dead. And look at that record album, Black Sabbath. God, in his foreknowledge, wrote about these men. Let me start with three verses for you. Psalm 10:4. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. Does that describe Belshazzar? Yes, it does. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Oh, Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, 
There is no God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. And there is no one who does good. Now, I want you to notice something on that passage just a second. The second part, they are corrupt and have committed abominable deeds. Why are they saying there is no God? Because they want to be able to do whatever they want. You see, if there really is a God who makes the law and they are violating his law, they're in trouble. There is no God. I can do whatever I want. So they do this. And it's important to see here with David, he repeated this passage twice. Again, in the next Psalm, Psalm 53, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed a bomb. Isn't that exact quote? Yes. In both Psalms, do you think God is trying to make a point? Men who say this are fools. What I'm talking about is our own hearts. If we try to say God is not control, God is not doing these things, God does not hold my life, breath, and ways in his hand, we are fools. You see, that's awfully strong language. Yeah, well, that's God's language. God feels very strongly about this. That's why the hand appeared in that banquet hall that night. I'm not letting this go any farther. This is the end. And we will see next week what happens to your good friend, Belshazzar. Question. Observation from the painting, it was his right hand, and the Bible features the right, the mighty right hand. Of God. The right hand of God is the one which was writing. Interesting point. How many times has God written something with his own hand in the Bible? How many times? Twice? Nope. Six. Well, with Jesus and Moses. How many times did he write the Ten Commandments? Once here, and Jesus in the sand, John, and uh, the adulterous woman. Interesting. Wouldn't it have been cool if they could have found a piece of plaster that was still intact in that banquet hall that had mene, mene, tikel, ufar, seen in it? What would the higher biblical critics have done then? But, you know, it seems like sometimes he doesn't give us all the evidence. That's why he hasn't let us find Noah's Ark yet. I wish we could find it. Well, some of you may think that it's been found. Yeah, don't, don't tell me it's up in Kentucky or Tennessee. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we could meet today. We thank you for preserving this book for us, for letting us know about this wonderful man, Daniel, and how awesome he was. Help us to see that he's given to us as an example how to live in the same type of world he had to live in. We can live that way. Help us, Father, to be unashamedly bold. Help us to have a faith that endures. Help us to know that if we stay pure, you will provide us with divine protection. Help us to know that you're in control and how you can bless other peoples through our lives. Now, Father, I pray that you'll give us a time of worship in your service today and that you will speak to people's hearts, the hearts of people who already know you and need to be strengthened, and the hearts of people who don't know you and who desperately need to. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, your precious Son, who died for me. Amen.